Hey, welcome to another edition of On Leadership. I'm Todd Wilson, the founder of Exponential. And uh, today I've got Larry Wachemeyer with me. Welcome, Larry. Hey, thanks, Todd. It's great to be with you. Hey, Larry is the founding and lead pastor of Light and Life Fellowship in San Diego, or in uh, uh, Long Beach, California, and uh, he's also our director of spiritual formation at Exponential. And uh, it's just great to have you with me today, Larry. Well, it's good uh, to be here, Todd. It really is great yeah. subject we're going to talk about. Hey, this topic today of scorecards. If I were given it another title, I might call it the anatomy of scorecards or something. I mean, you and I. Uh, today's really the first of probably four parts spread over time on scorecards. And I think some of the most uh, thought-provoking conversations I've had with you over the years have been in one way or another associated with scorecards. Um, you, in your book Flow, I think it was in the book Flow, uh, it's always stuck with me. You, you pose the question, how would it change the game of basketball if you got three points for an assist and only one point for the for the three-point shot? If you switch the scoring around to where you got three points for an assist. And, you know, just as we get started here, Larry, that like the importance of scorecards and even something as simple as that framework of thinking, open up a little bit just about the significance of scorecards, why they're so important. Yeah, scorecards um, is that inner metric that motivates us in what we do and in why we do it and what has value to us, what puts points on the boards. And so to use the analogy that you just used, uh, a three points for an assist, that would change the game of basketball because now everybody would be trying to help uh, their teammates score and they would put value on something that before – didn't have a scoring value to them. And so this idea of um, what drives us on the inside is just critical to what happens um, through our ministries. So, you know, let's, let's dwell on this idea of scorecards for a minute. Um, you know, oftentimes uh, in, in the church world, you know, when people talk about the church scorecard, not the personal scorecard, but the church scorecard, um, you know, they'll talk about attendance and offering and number of baptisms. If, if we just take the traditional set of, of scorecard metrics, what, what really drives, why those, what drives those metrics? I mean, you know, if, if we're really honest, 99.99% of pastors, if they're honest, church attendance is number one. So what, what is it that cause what's causing that? Why church attendance is number one? Yeah, because we we live in a culture, Todd, a church culture that that's what gets the notoriety, that's what gets the headlines, that's what puts points on the boards of those powers that be within the American church. Um, that's for a long time, we had the fastest growing and the largest churches being highlighted in our publications. And so in that culture, if that's the culture that you live and breathe in, you're, you're trained and schooled into that set of values, that, that metric system, and you internalize it. And um, the other portion of that is that, um, Th that attendance metric, for example, on your scoreboard, 
the more people that are listening to me, that feels really, really good to my ego. Uh, and so the church culture values it. My notoriety goes up and it really strokes that self-image that I want to uh, stroke so, so badly. Well, how let, let, let's even press into that a little bit more that you're, you're, you're going from sort of the church scorecard with attendance to this idea of stoking the individual scorecard for a minute. So let's, let, let's come at it this way. Um, it's been said that, that, that the COVID pandemic is accelerating and amplifying trends that were already out there before COVID. So let's, let's kind of intersect two trends that, that we know are happening now. So prior to COVID, church attendance was not on the rise. COVID has now, in this traditional sense of how many people are sitting in the seats, uh, we've seen a pretty significant deceleration of attendance at this point. Yeah, you can count the online parts, but but we've seen attendance you know, drop because of COVID. Yeah. At the very same time, most of the experts are saying mental health issues with pastors are at an all-time high. You're a pastor. You work with a lot of pastors. Is there a connection? Yeah, Todd, I, I think there is. I mean, I think pastors, most pastors that were fighting the attendance battle, trying, trying to um, get their attendance numbers up and fighting that battle Sunday after Sunday, they were a bit discouraged already. And then COVID hit. And now there's a sense of, of hopelessness that just weighs on them. Some of them feel stuck in their current situation and can't get out of it for financial reasons or uh, relational reasons. And so it really is weighing upon the minds and the hearts of, of pastors because their scorecard has just been a bit um, devastated, at least disrupted by COVID itself. And yeah, it, it's... It, there's a connection there that I think is more significant than we've really realized. Well, this kind of multi-part uh, look at scorecards that we're going to look at, let, let's talk, you know, why are we doing it and why give, you know, in this entire on leadership show series that we're doing right now, I'm not sure we'll give anything as much attendance as this idea of the scorecard. And the way we've split it up, Larry, you and I through the years, when, when we were writing, uh, I think, the book Spark, working on it together, some tensions. Um, we we started with a list of what we called external tensions. Uh, what are those external factors? Our kind of our contextual factors that are holding us back from a multiplication scorecard. That's where we were coming from. Right. What are those factors that really lock us in more to some of the traditional growth metrics like attendance and? offerings and things like that. Um, we, I think if I remember right, Larry, we came up with like 20 different external shaping factors that were, it's like a magnetic field shaping things, just shaping pastors, but with an external focus. And at some point, I remember you saying to me, you know, the external stuff's just external there's some really ornery factors internal. Like, you know, if we think these external factors are bad and you came up with a list, I think at the time, maybe 20 internal, it was close to 20 internal shaping factors. So 
what Larry and I are going to be doing over the coming weeks and, and maybe month is we're starting in this episode with uh, 12 tensions that shape an inwardly focused scorecard. It's, uh, you know, it's those shaping factors that are shaping internally inside of us. What causes us to put such value on attendance and such value on finances. And then at a, at a date in the future, we're going to deal with those external factors. And I think what Larry and I would like you to do if you're tuned in today is as we go through these 12 internal factors, and then in a few weeks when we go through the external factors, use those as a diagnostic. Right. Um, you, you may say, oh, half of those don't even apply to me. That's okay. The way we would encourage you to look at these is each of the 12 factors we're going to go through today, think of it as like a slider scale. On one end of the slider, if you want to do one to 10, that's fine. If you, you know, on one end, it's like, this isn't a problem for me at all. And on the other end, this is a huge problem for me. Just imagine that you're going to dial in as you hear Larry and I talk about these 12. Where are you on each factor? How much of a problem is it for you? Um, if the goal is to have healthy scorecards, we've got to start with a, a true diagnostic of looking critically at where we're we're weak. Um, what we're going to do probably in the third part of this is we're going to we're going to turn to the positive side. So, what do we learn from Jesus? Like, if if we were writing a book on the scorecard of Jesus and the internal and external factors that shape the Jesus scorecard, we'll get to that optimistic side here. You know, a few few weeks from now. Uh, and then I think probably in a fourth part, Larry, we're going to turn to what we call hero maker at exponential. It's the, if Jesus was the ultimate hero and hero maker, that idea of more points for assists than for doing the score yourself. Um, what does it look like for us to have that kind of healthy outward focus scorecard? So let's jump in. Let's, uh, let's take these 12 and I, I would, why don't you address before we jump in, Larry, like, are these like the 12 commandments of the Bible or like, how do we come up with these 12 or how, how'd you speak into them? Yeah. Thanks, Todd. Uh, you mentioned the original list that I came up with 18 internal tensions and you know, the way that I came up with those 18 that we now uh, have identified 12 out of those to really talk about is because of my own journey, Todd. And, and you know that uh, we were a church that had a scorecard where attendance was really a, a small G God in our congregation and uh, built totally around an attractional model. And so as we made the shift to begin to reproduce and plant and give away and move towards multiplication, these these idols came up in my heart. I mean, these these tensions begin to surface as to whether I would hold on or or release. And um, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of what the Lord said. He, he said very clearly, uh, "Guard your heart with all diligence, because out of it flow the issues of life. Everything in life flows out of it." And, and I think the same is true for our ministry. It is it, it is the condition of our heart that will give birth to the ministry. Uh, 
uh, that we actually demonstrate to the world and the ministry models that we choose based upon the condition of our heart. And uh, it, it's a bit like Simon Sinek says in his book, Start With Why. And uh, so I had to get down to what was holding me back. What were the idols in my heart? What were the tensions? And so Really, um, this is a kind of a self-confessional, uh, uh, kind of a testimony journey for me. And while not all of them will apply to all of our listeners, of course, uh, at some point in some degree on that sliding scale, all the 12 that we're going to talk about were in my heart to some degree. So that's how the Holy Spirit just shined a light on them. That's how. Hmm. Well, hey, as we get started here, we've got a question uh, that's come in and uh, how would you answer this, Larry? Um, the question's basically this. If, if we were looking at the life and teaching of Jesus, what would the basis be of even concluding that having scorecards is spiritual? How, how do we get past the hurdle that, you know, you could interpret scorecards are somewhat idolatry kind of thing. So what's the teaching of Jesus or the modeling of Jesus that we would even say there's a biblical foundation for having a scorecard? Well, I, I think you one of the places I would go to answer that question is John chapter 15, because in John chapter 15, Jesus in the upper room discourse talks about bearing fruit, and he talks about it is to the Father's glory that you bear much fruit. And, and that, in a sense, is that scorecard. Jesus is saying, I want you to bear as much fruit as possible. And if our scorecards are in alignment with his value system and uh, his scorecard, then the more fruit, the, fir- the, the more points we put on that board, the more he will be glorified, number one, and the more people that we will reach um, for the kingdom of God and rescue from the darkness. And so, yes, yeah, scorecards, if they're the right scorecards, are super important for us if they align with his. Yeah. I think for me, when we were even trying to come up, how do you title 12 mm-hmm. tensions for this thing? I, I, in some ways, go right to the parable of the talents, which at the core of the parable of the talents is a stewardship issue. And when we think about stewardship, stewardship for what and to whom kind of thing. And I know I wrestle when I look at the, you know, what we're jumping into on these 12 tensions, in some ways you could title it, you know, the, the moving from a me centered or narcissistic scorecard to a Jesus centered or outwardly focused scorecard. And in some ways it's the, when I'm grasping onto things myself it's sort of inward stewardship, like I'm seeing it as mine, 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 mine kind of thing, as opposed to stewarding what Jesus has given us. And so I, you know, I, I think we can't get, we can't lose sight of the stewardship aspect that scorecards do help us stay focused on what it is that's been given to us and what it is that uh, God's entrusted to our care for that in the John 15 fruit that you're talking about. So with that, let's jump in. Um, We've got 12 tensions. All 12 of these are available in a free, what we call flip book. If you go to exponential.org forward slash tensions, there's a a short book that covers all 12 of these tensions. So Larry, we're going to kind of go through these. And, uh, you know, what I'm interested in is just 
you said these were rooted in some degree of, of you feeling like you had these when you were pulling it together. Let's start with just a simple definition. So let's start with competition. We're going to go through these alphabetically right now. And when you think competition as a tension that creates an inward scorecard, what does that mean? Unpack that for us. Yeah, for, for me, competition means that I'm looking at other ministry leaders around me and assigning myself a, a score based upon how I'm doing compared to them. And so if my scorecard is about attendance and buildings and budgets and, and notoriety, I'm trying to compete with them for a bigger market share of that, uh, of that, of that attention. And so it's a, it's a self-image stroking kind of, um, uh, of drive. The, I, I'm a competitor. I mean, I, I came to the West Coast from Kansas on a football scholarship, and uh, I love to win. And so once I was in ministry, I wanted to win. But my win got focused on other ministry leaders, other pastors, other churches, rather than staying pure to um, what Jesus wanted for me and for our church and in my territory that uh, was lost. And so I'm assuming from what you're saying, it's not that all competition is sinful. It's somewhere there's a line between a healthy competition and then an unhealthy competition. What's, how would you define the distinction between the two? Yeah, I, I, I think an, an unhealthy competition goes back to both the scorecard. In other words, what are you competing about? So, for example, attendance or finances and what's driving you to compete. And so uh, if if competition is like, I don't want to be better than someone else. I want to be the best pastor I can be in in the lane that God has called me to run in. And, and then that sense of competition is for every day. I want to get up and go further and do better and do more. And uh, but it's, again, for his glory and about the lostness. It's about making disciples. Um, and as we know, disciple making versus attracting consumer Christians, that's two different things. And I was more focused on attracting consumer Christians. Uh, not that I would ever say that rather than making disciples that would make disciples. And I'm assuming at the core of this, the, you know, the, we, we can live with a scarcity mindset or we can live with an abundance mindset. Good. And I'm assuming the abundance that Jesus intends for us, there's more than enough to go around that when the sinful part of this competition is when we're seeing our communities and the, and, and the opportunities in our community from a scarcity standpoint that if they get it, I won't kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the best examples of that, Todd, is the fact that we plant churches within five minutes of us or within 10 minutes of us, because it's not about whether somebody from the neighborhood goes to their church instead of my church. It's about the fact that there's 95% of the people within our 10 mile radius are lost and don't know Jesus. Um, yeah. Hmm. So that's that. Right. There's more than a, there's more than enough centers to go around. <laughs> we need to get out there and uh, and win them for Christ. 
Great. Um, let's move on to the second tension. So the second tension, uh, complacency. And so again, let's sort of define it. And then what is that? How does that like, or how has it shown itself for you, Larry? Yeah, for, for me, it, complacency is, is that being satisfied with status quo and settling, plateauing, not, not, not that that took away my drive to build the size of my church, but for me, it manifested in what kind of work I was going to have to do. Because the larger our church grew and our church was growing rapidly, um, the more people I could hire and at first, I was having to do all this work to cover all these bases, and now I could be more and more selective, and it was getting easier in that sense. And for me to become a multiplier and uh, start sending out leaders and people, I was going to have to um, fill the pipeline again and again and again. And so for me, complacency was like, wow, that that would be an easier road, but the Lord convicted me, like, really, you want the easy road or you want the best road, uh, the most productive road? And if we, if we, again, what, what it seems like is common to all 12 of these is that they're not all just bad. There's there. Yes, there's a sinful part of these 12, but there's also a healthy part of these 12. And so if we're sort of looking at the balancing act on complacency for a second, here's what's jumping to my mind. Um, I could use the word coasting instead of complacency that, you know, I'll use the as we age and we're a little less energy and, you know, we're, we're trying to keep things stable and let's not rock the boat. There is a, a tendency, I think, that we have seasons of coasting, which may or may not be healthy, but probably a little bit more on the unhealthy side. Now, on the flip side of that, Larry, how do you draw the line? I'm going to use the word balance for a minute as if you're the steward of your church and you're the leader of the church and you have a pretty big influence in what you do and don't do in the church, there is an aspect of having to be sensitive to where the staff is on this balancing act and where your leaders are and you know how much can the church handle at this point. So, Talk a little bit about the balancing act and the difference in that unhealthy end of the spectrum where it's avoidance and coasting, and maybe the healthy end of the spectrum where it's, hey, part of stewardship, part of stewarding your church is to know when to, to be balanced. Yeah, I think that has to do both with personal and leadership rhythms and congregational staff rhythms. Um, I think you do have to be led by the Spirit on that because it, it, if you're not, so for example, there was a time when we were going to try and plant three, we'd just given away a bunch of people to a church plant, and we we're going to try and plant three churches, three new churches at once. And the staff was just exhausted because they'd given away all their volunteer leaders to, not all of them, but to this church plant. And it just wasn't right. That wasn't, um, our, our decision to pull back from planting all three at once was not a decision of complacency. It was a, a decision of stewardship and end of rhythms. And um, so I, I don't think when Jesus asked us to come and walk with him, 
And he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is, li- is light. We're walking in step with him. And I have a tendency to want to run ahead of him or lag behind him, um, run ahead of him in my just my zeal, but it's un- undirected by a spirit mm-hmm. or lag behind because, frankly, it's just to give away again is going to create more work, but it's time that uh, we release and that we send and that we empower and uh, give away. So, hmm. All right. Uh, the third of the 12 tensions, Larry, is this idea of conflict avoidance, <laughs> um, conflict avoidance. And, you know, I, I think all of us have had those times where it's, it's just sort of, whether it feels like sideways energy to have to deal with conflict, it feels unproductive. It, you know, it's, it's just not the first thing we want to deal with sort of thing, but why, you know, why is that one of the tensions that shapes an inward scorecard conflict avoidance? Yeah. I think every leader has a sense of what's going to create conflict in general and, and some idea of how big of conflict it's going to create. And so for me, I I don't, I'm a conflict avoider and I have to work against that. So when we were changing our church from an addition model to a, to a multiplication model, I knew because I'd trained these folks in uh, one scorecard that, yeah, the size of our Sunday attendance is our big win um, that to come in and say, yeah, actually we're going to give away, 10%, 20% of our congregation, I knew that that change in model and paradigm was going to create big problems in the power brokers. And I didn't really want to go there. It was a, it it was, you have to decide whether you're the sideways energy that conflict is going to create is worth the forward momentum. If you'll go through that conflict that, that, that it will create if you move through that conflict. You have to decide which hills are worth dying on and then move through that conflict. So for me, I had to work through that. So let, let me press in just a little bit. It, it seems to me for what we're talking about here, I don't want to just limit it to two types, but there's definitely two primary types of conflict that we're talking about here. There's, I'm going to call it reactive conflict where there has already been a problem and now the only question is, am I going to confront the problem and deal with it or not? Am I going to avoid the problem that's already happened or, or go after it? And the second category is the proactive conflict. It's the, we haven't yet made a decision to do fill in the blank, to plant the three churches, to start the new campus, to you know let a staff member go. Uh, and now we are being shaped in our decision-making and possibly allowing the avoidance of conflict to affect that proactive decision that we were going to make. That's a great question. Talk, talk a little bit. It is, are there, if we talk the first category, are there times where you can think of that we should reactive conflict where the, you know, the problem has already happened that we should avoid it or, or would you advise younger leaders that, no, you need to deal with conflict. Like, or are there times that you you really would say, no, 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 avoid the conflict? 
Yeah. Usually you need to move into conflict, but it's how you move into conflict that makes all the difference. I'm a lot of young leaders and a lot of older leaders, they really don't know the art and the the spiritual gift, as it were, of diplomacy and, and how you move into those kinds of conflicts. So usually you do need to move into them. But but if there if there's a problem, you need to ask yourself, is this problem going to go away on its own fairly quickly? And we'll just pray about it and see if it does. Or is this problem, if left untended, is it going to really, it's a hole in the boat that's going to sink the ship if it continues to grow? Is it growing? Is it shrinking? Um, how much how much runway do we have to deal with it? Um, so those things, you really need to get more and more information about the problem and then just pray and be discerning about it. And if you move into it, move into it, you know, just a lot of compassion and diplomacy. But yeah, that's certainly one type of conflict. And there are times to avoid, you know, scripture's clear on that, that there are times to avoid some conflicts. Hmm. All right. Well, our fourth tension, Larry, uh, covetedness. And at first glimpse, you could conclude, well, what's the difference in competition and covetedness? How would you define covetedness? And then how is it different than competition? Yeah, so covetousness is, of course, yearning for something that someone else has and that you you think about, well, if I just had this, fill in the blank, whatever this is, ministry and life and church or the points on my scoreboard would be very different if I had this. And usually it's what someone else has. And so just an example is that um, we've got a church right next door to us that has 190 parking spots, and the congregation is about 30 elderly folks. And we have 39 parking spots for our church. And uh, I, I, I just said, our church could really grow if they would let us use those parking spots. And uh, so I had to deal with that in my own, my own heart. And as it relates to church planting, um, we were all ready to relocate our church to a much larger and safer location, a larger parking lot, everything. And that's what my heart was coveting. I wanted that. Uh, but the Lord revealed a different, uh, a different paradigm, a different model for us. Hmm. Let's, we're a third of the way through the 12. Let's pause for a minute, Larry. And here's what I'd like to do. It would be very easy for people. It's kind of like the 10 commandments. You start going through them. It's like, not a problem, not a problem, not a problem, not a problem for me. Let's, let's just pause on the first four competition, complacency, conflict avoidance, and covetedness, okay? And let's assume for a minute that somebody, none of the four are a huge problem for somebody, but let's say on a scale of one to 10, where 10's a giant problem and one's not much of a problem, let's say somebody's down at the two or three range, not one, but two or three. It's a, yeah, there's a little bit of a nugget there, okay? Let's just play out how could in these four competition, complaint. So competition that I want to win over somebody else, complacency. I I'm 
ah, the status quo is okay, conflict avoidance, and especially the proactive kind where it's like, nah, we're not going to do that because it might lead to conflict. And then that seeking something that somebody else has part of thing. How could just a little bit of being off on those four really get us way off track, let's say? Yeah, if 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 you allow those things to go unaddressed in your life, the reality is sin is always like cancer. And so you're either the scale, the slider is either moving one direction or the other always. And so to think, well, it's not that big a problem because, hey, it's only a three uh, in my life. That, that's a wrong that's a wrong mindset that you bring to it. Our call is to be like Christ. And so we have to keep moving that slider in that lower direction where those things are not driving uh, our ministry, not motivating our ministry in, in unhealthy ways whatsoever. And um, especially uh, two or three of those in the first four, just they, they, they come really into our, our own love relationship with Christ and the, um, that, that, true dis, uh, that true discipleship of hearing and obeying his voice versus the other voices uh, that we're hearing from our church culture, from our own egos. Um, so, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, let's move on. The fifth one, demonic resistance. Hmm. And this is one, Larry, that would you say, uh, just from your experience, the average pastor overstates this one as a problem, understates it? Where Where's the average pastor on this one of the demonic resistance? Well, I'm pretty confident to say that uh, there's an understatement of this. There's just not enough awareness of the spiritual forces of evil that are coming against us uh, in ministry, especially when we begin to move towards um, a disciple-making movement or multiplication. If there's anything the evil one hates, it's when we begin to do uh, ministry in really the way that Jesus did ministry. And so th there's going to be a resistance there. And the, one of the reasons I'm confident that pastors uh, understate their um, their awareness of this or or miss the awareness that they should have of this is because Jesus, in, in teaching us to pray, uh, you know, he says, give us this day our daily bread. We know that this is a daily prayer that we would lift to the Lord. But in the end of that prayer, he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And of course, the, the question is whether it's evil or evil one in the translations there. But really, Jesus is teaching us to pray daily against demonic resistance because it's so subtle. I mean, the enemy, his, the enemy's favorite tune is a lullaby to put us to sleep. So we're uh, unaware of his devices against us. Uh, so I, I think we just really need to press in daily against the, the plan of the evil. And I, I've got stories from our own church planting that just bear this out so, uh, so vividly. It just seems to me, Larry, you know, if, if we were trying to put these in some kind of order, or, you know, relationship between the 12, 
it seems like the common denominator, when you talk about the teaching of Jesus and what Jesus would have us do, and what does Satan want to do? He wants to whisper in the ear. I mean, the first four that we already talked about, competition, complacency, conflict avoidance, and covetousness. okay? Can't you just hear the whisper of Satan on all four of those? Absolutely. And the reality is, as we go through all 12 of these, there is absolutely a whisper that's in that, that that's always there. It's, it's, it reminds me of the, the commercials years ago where there's the little Satan on one shoulder and angel on the other shoulder and they're whispering in the ears and Satan is just always there whispering these things in. I think when we get to the week where we're, we're looking at uh, the scorecard of Jesus and the positive influences of Jesus, I'll go back to where we were a minute ago on those first four. What's the impact of not having those four healthy or even all 12 of these healthy for a minute? Um, I think we're going to see when we get to the scorecard of Jesus, things like faith and boldness and, and the idea that we are stewarding the resources of God and that Jesus does have a plan and a vision for us. If all of us, it doesn't take much being off on these factors of competition and complacency and conflict avoidance. And then with Satan whispering in our ear things, what we can absolutely miss is the plan and the call and the vision of God for what he intends for us to do. And it only takes a little bit of being off in these things, it seems like. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And I, I would take us back to the temptations of Jesus himself, because as he was beginning ministry, um, the evil one came and said, hey, feed yourself. Uh, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all this. It was the enemy was trying to shift his scorecard. Uh, so I think you're exactly right. Well, let's move on. The sixth item is doubt. Mm -hmm. And so let's... Uh, Let's press into doubt a little bit. I mean, it's kind of obvious the definition, but how have you seen doubt play into this shaping an inwardly focused scorecard? Yeah, well, <sighs> doubt is is a diminishing of the of the heart and the power of God uh, in my own heart. So. What I mean by that is that when we were, we felt like the Lord was very clearly leading us into this new model of church that was so different than what we'd had, a very different scorecard, both in um, internally and externally. But um, my question became like, Lord, if we give away uh, all these people and these leaders and these finances, Will you, can you replenish that? I mean, we've worked really hard to build what we have, and now we're going to give it away. And a doubt began to sink into my mind that, wow, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I know he's God theoretically, but will he come through experientially in these ways? And so it's a doubt that holds back my action because like, can I really trust him? I know he's powerful enough, but will he, will he do it? Um, Hmm. And how do we, we've got a question that's come in, Larry, and it's a really good one. It's how do we make the distinction on this line between healthy and unhealthy? There's, there is a, 
an aspect of proper caution, like the wisdom of being cautious, but then there's the boldness of faith. So how do you, how do you, at, at the intersection there of boldness of faith and wisdom of caution, how do we, how do we get the foot on the right side of the line with doubt there? Yeah, I, I think that confirmation of the direction that you're believing is, is, you know, you, there's a doubt that's healthy because you don't have a clear enough green light from God to go for it. Uh, there's, there's a doubt that's, that's based on, well, looking at these factors, assessing where the team is, where the church is, where the staff is right now, where my own energy levels are right now, th- that's one thing. But, but when you say, when you have confirmation from God that uh, from different voices, there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors and there's confirmation that he gives, now the doubt is, will I pull the trigger? Will, will, now will I believe God? And um, that's when doubt becomes the anchor uh, and you need faith to be the sail. Um, mm-hmm. hmm. Well, we're, we're halfway through this list, Larry, and it's kind of exhausting. Like, uh, ha- what's the word of encouragement here for, again, just, you know, if I come back to conflict avoidance for a minute, like, it would be very easy for for leaders right now to say, man, that's just too hard. I, I don't want to look at these things. So how, why do we just remind us, why do we need to take a hard look at these things? We have to look at these things because they're going to limit the ministry impact and fruitfulness that you are going to have and even your joy in the ministry, because you're bowing down to these and their unhealthy expressions are really idols. And you're, you're, you're bowing down and worshiping the wrong God because you're wanting to build your own kingdom or you're, uh, or, or you're just like serving yourself. And Jesus said, you know, in Luke 9, 23, so clearly, if any man comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily mm. and follow me. So it's this daily surrender. And, and the good news is this, is when, when God tells us greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, these, these scorecards that come from the world and from our fallenness, they, they are under the power of Jesus. We can overcome them by his strength. The risen one lives within us. And so when he's inside of us, we can overcome every unhealthy tension by his power. And it's, it's not instantaneous, but it's this growth in grace that God takes us through. Hmm. Well, as if these haven't been hard enough so far, we're going to get into some really ornery ones now. All right. <laughs> so uh, number seven ego. So talk to us, Larry, about this idea of ego and where ego fits uh, and how how it's different than some of these other ones that we've talked about. Yeah, ego really hones in on how I want to be seen and how I value myself internally, both. Uh, So how do I want to be seen and how do I value myself internally? So for example, Todd, um, when the Lord called us to begin to um, boldly start giving away people and planting churches, and as I mentioned, we'd, we'd been a church of addition and we had just won 
the plaque that our bishops and our denomination give for the fastest growing church in the in the nation. So we'd been trying to win this plaque for about three years and we won that plaque. And my ego was like, hey, you know, this, this you know, we're, we're pretty good here. <laughs> I'm pretty good here. <laughs> and that's when the Lord, it's a long story, but that's when the Lord spoke to us and uh, said, are you willing to never win the plaque again? Uh, are, are you willing for your size number in the yearbook that they publish annually? Are you willing for that to diminish if my kingdom expands? Mm. And man, that got to the idol of ego in me. Um, where I saw, you know, as really often wanting me to be glorified more than Jesus to be glorified. Hmm. We, we've got another question, Larry. So it'd be good to have your thoughts on this. Um, of all of the items we've talked about so far, you, you know, they're all have a sin rooted in them, but it just feels like this item of ego is a little bit deeper rooted one. It feels like it's one of those when you're peeling back the onion of symptoms, 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 cause, you know, it is in fact, you know, it is, is ego a symptom of sinful stuff or is it really kind of more of a core issue that causes some of these other things as symptoms? I think you're exactly right. I, I think it is a core issue. Um, I, I think it goes back to the original sin, uh, that, um, that desire to be like God. And um, so we eat from the wrong tree. And it's, it's, this, it's this desire to elevate ourselves. And because we are, because we are not content and satisfied and valued enough in, in our relationship with Christ. Um, therefore, we begin to look for other ways to, um, to build our value and our self-image. And, and ego's right, right, at, right at the heart of that. Um, so, you know, you've heard often ego stands for edging God out. And, and it really is. It's, it's elevating myself up and edging God out. And it's, it is. It's, it's right at the core of that. And that's what surrender really means. Um, hmm. Yeah. So many of these and ego being right at the top of the list, the idea of the me-centered scorecard versus the Jesus-centered scorecard, or in some ways, you know, these 12 factors are bringing out the narcissist in me. It's the, you know, seeing the world through, you know, the lens of my success and me, me, me kind of thing. Um, but let's play into the next one, which is financial risk. <laughs> and, and I'll speak personally, you know, when I used to be an executive pastor, I, I can tell you to this day, one of the things that I liked the least in the role of executive pastor was having to look at the finances on Monday morning. You know, so much of how I felt about ministry and I felt about myself was, and I'll say this is sinful, was rose and fall on how well the offerings were kind of thing. Now, in this case, you've characterized it financial risk. So, what ex what's the risk part here, Larry? Like, how is it that financial risk is a tension that shapes the scorecard? Well, yeah, I think there, there are two dimensions to that, probably more. But, but 
financial risk, uh, the, the more finances we have, the more we feel secure, whether we are secure or not. Um, but we just have that human feeling of security. And so whether it's for our church or whether it's for in our own personal finances, it goes to both directions. So this idea that um, this idea that we trumpet around our church now that you can't outgive God, um, that's a scary thought when you start to give away as much as 25% of your church in a church planting move. And we've, we've done that before and um, on more than one occasion. And when you see your, you know, 25% of the tithe and offering walk out the door, you, you, that's, that's a, that's a big risk. And uh, I mean, and, it doesn't all come back on the timetable that you you want. And so for me to move into this model, we uh, uh, growing attendance meant growing dollars. And so that gave me a sense of security, both on a personal level and for a church and for the staff that I was hiring. But now we're switching the model and we're actually going to uh, give away tithers and support it with uh, our finances as well. That was, that was the risk. And it was a scary thing for me. Um, it really was. And of course, for our board, that's, that was the big, one of their biggest fears. Um, can we pay the bills if we start planting churches? Mm. And I, I'm realizing as you're unpacking this one, Larry, you're, you're bringing up the financial risk in the context of future proactive decision-making. Should we plant the church or not? And what's the risk of people leaving? And it, it, I'm realizing as I look at this list of 12 factors that many of these are rooted in the decision-making process. It isn't so much what's already happened in the past. It's how do these items on my scorecard, these deeper rooted things that make up my personal scorecard, how do they shape my future decision-making? Am, am I seeing it the right way that it's a... Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. As you think forward, then these tensions really arise and, and show themselves because I wouldn't have described myself as having a love of money. I was personally generous, Deb, my wife and I, you know, were very generous um, but when I thought about taking the risk and losing uh, the financial stability that I had, risking that, wow, that began to shape that decision. Um, well, in some way, all 12 of these factors relative to decision making, mm -hmm. it's almost like they're, I won't say hidden, they're like unspoken filter points or shaping factors on decision making. Yep. And I think what's really ornery about it is it's not like they're on a plaque on a wall. It's not like we intentionally, before we make a decision, go through the, well, am I being competitive in this? Or am I being complacent in this? Or am I lacking faith and doubting in this? And yet the collection of all these unspoken shaping factors really do have the outcome of probably in an unhealthy way, shaping our decision-making, what we do and don't do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you referenced the uh, parable of the talents. And I think that's a, you know, his decision-making was based on that fear of losing the finances that he had. And he ended up being a very poor steward because of it. Hmm. Well, our next one is insecurity. And so talk a little bit about, uh, you know, in dimensions other than finances and other things, what are the other forms that 
you know, a general insecurity can take in terms of shaping our scorecard and decision-making? Yeah. Insecurity, because uh, if I'm not really secure in who I am as a person. And, and I love this, that Jesus's ministry was launched with the father's declaration that this is my son whom I love in him. I'm well pleased even before he went out and into ministry. It, that was so shaping for him. And that's the place I want to live out of so that ministry doesn't flow from an effort to make myself more secure, but it flows from the father's voice. And so um, for me, is one of the manifestations of insecurity is because we plant churches close to us. Um, when I send out a pastor, my question is, I, I, uh, who's going to go with them? I, I say to the whole church, hey, Brian's going out to plant a church. God's going to call some of you to go with them. And so you start praying about, right, right, praying about that right now. And then I'm sometimes so-and-so, one of my better friends, decided to go with Brian. And I'm, I'm just shocked. And, and it feels like a personal rejection. And now I'm saying, what does Brian have that I don't have? And it, I'm insecure about, uh, about who I am because, oh, so many are going with Brian, for example, or who's going with Brian. And so it keeps me from being generous with people generous with the sheep um, because I'm insecure about my leadership. So I got to power up. Now, now remember we're the mother church and I'm the senior pastor and uh, that's how it manifests for me. Hmm. Well, Larry, uh, we've got about five minutes left. We've got three more and I, here's what I'm going to do. The last three loss of control, people pleasing and risk averse. Let's sort of address all three as a collective group and just your perspective on anything that jumps out in all three of those. Loss of control, people-pleasing, and risk-averse. Yeah, I, I, I have to fight people-pleasing because I'm a three on the Enneagram. I like to be thought of well. And, uh, and so when you have a prevailing church culture that um, – that says, hey, uh, the most people are going to be happy with you if you don't rock their boat. Um, when you start rocking their boat, they get unhappy. But that's exactly what you have to do in following what the Lord is calling you to, especially into planting and multiplication. And um, so I had to really battle that and say, I, I, I want to please you, Lord, not these people that are going to get mad and leave or um, you know, have problems with me because of, of the road in ministry that we're taking. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, lots of, lots of control is just like, okay, I can, as senior pastor, when you're under my care, I can, I can make sure that you're getting taught well and that you're, that, that you're doing things in an acceptable manner. But once I send you out with somebody, you're under them and they're not as mature or as educated as me. And now I'm out of control and it may dilute our brand because it doesn't look just like our mother church does or um, get, have the same feel. And suddenly it pulls us down. So no, Lord, I'm going to trust you. Uh, you're in control, God. And so I can lose control. It's interesting, Larry, these last three loss of control, people pleasing and risk adverse. I mean, you brought up the Enneagram three, and 
you know, any of those sorts of, whether it's Myers-Briggs or Strength Finders or Enneagram, there's a positive to characteristics and there's a negative to characteristics. And I think one thing you're highlighting here, you're a three. So the people pleasing thing can be a negative part of that. I'm an eight. So the idea of I'm not going to lose control. Okay. I'm ornery if I'm going to lose control. And then I, I can't remember which one the risk adverse is directly one of the Enneagram. So I think what we've got to keep in mind is uh, our staff and our teams, the people we work with, are a mosaic of positives and negatives. And so each of these characteristics, there is a positive to it, there's a negative to it. And we've just got to realize it isn't just our personal scorecard, but it's also how we interact in the mosaic of how our teams are made up too. Do you see that on your staff team? I mean, is that the way it ends up working? Yeah, absolutely. And we have qu quite a diversity, whether it's strengths or spiritual gifts or Enneagram. And uh, so there are strengths and weaknesses, and some, some of their strengths help pull my weaknesses up to where they need to be. And some of my strengths help pull uh, their weaknesses up. Uh, so that we're moving together in a collective way, but sometimes you have to filter their voice through what their strength or their weakness is. And uh, so you have to kind of keep an eye on that as a leader as well. Um, All right. Well, Larry, uh, as we kind of wind down here, we, we mentioned in the beginning, these are, we're starting with the internal tensions, those things that are you know, really inside of a shaping decision-making and shaping our response to things, both healthy and unhealthy. Um, we're going to move on in a future one of these to the external factors. So could you just, as we're winding down right now, if we don't get the internal ones in the right check and balance, if we don't have the right internal scorecard, give us a preview the kinds of external factors then, the context that we're doing ministry in, and the 20 external factors that are shaping our scorecard, what, what happens to our ability to deal with those 20, and what ends up happening if we don't get these internal ones right first? Yeah, if, if, if we don't get the internal right, then once we begin to push in a certain direction, the external tensions and pressures that we feel, uh, we, we won't stick with uh, because we haven't dealt with the heart. And as I quoted earlier, uh, really our ministry flows out, out of our heart. And back to the John 15, uh, that the, the Father's glorified that we bear much fruit and fruit that lasts, but that comes from abiding. So that old phrase, abiding leads to abounding. These external tensions um, most of those we can't control, mm -hmm. but what we can control is what we allow the Holy Spirit to do in us as we surrender and are empowered by the Spirit. Then we have the internal um, uh, resolve to take on, by the help of the Spirit, these external tensions that are going to push against the direction of walking in mission, on mission with Jesus. Mm. Well, uh, Larry, I want to thank you for being with me today and uh, your work in putting this together. Larry and I have put together what we call a flip book. We've taken these 12 tensions, and this is a free download. We want to encourage you, visit exponential.org forward slash tensions, 
And all 12 of these, we unpack one tension per page. And we've done it in a way that you can personally use it as a self-diagnosis to see where you are on each one. But you also can use this with your team. We want to encourage you to distribute this uh, free resource to your team, possibly even do a staff meeting or something where you have a candid conversation with uh, with your team on this. So, uh, Larry, thanks for uh, joining me today and look forward to our next session together. Thanks, Todd. It's always a joy to be with you.